You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Martin Boudry. Martin is a postdoctoral fellow of the Flemish Fund for Scientific Research and a professor at Ghent University. He is the author of 35 academic papers, and I'm going to put a link to his academia page in the show notes. He is the editor of two uh, books together with Massimo Piliucci, Science Unlimited on the Challenges of Scientism, 2018, and Philosophy of Pseudoscience, Reconsidering the Demarcation Problem, 2013. And he's also the author of four popular books on science and philosophy in Dutch. A lot of his articles are available on his blog in English, and I will put a link to that blog into the show notes. And most importantly, um, Martin has also had a correspondence on um, Letter, which, as many of you know, is the the enterprise which I'm closely involved in, founded by Clyde and Dane Rathbone, which is a public venue for one-on-one correspondences, letter exchanges. And on that, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, Martin is uh, corresponding with the philosopher um, Peter Bogosian on the nature of belief. And I'll link also Martin's letter profile, if that's okay with you, Martin. Sure. So people can, so you can uh, write to Martin on letter if you want to enter into a letter exchange with him. He is not obliged, however, to answer any letters. So only if he reads your letter and feels it's it's interesting enough to answer, um, will the correspondence take place, and only then will it be featured on our on our site. But um, if you if you'd like to write him a letter, go ahead. And thank you so much for joining me, Martin. Thanks for having me, Yona. So first of all, um, I've been reading um, most of your articles and watching the talks that I could find available on YouTube, but um, I wasn't able to find anything about that you have written or or spoken about on the demarcation problem. So perhaps you could begin by just uh, telling me and the listeners what you understand to be the demarcation problem and how this is relevant to perhaps the distinction between science and, and pseudoscience? Yeah, well, um, the demarcation problem is an, uh, is an old chestnut in, in philosophy of science that uh, occupied a couple of its founding figures, especially Karl Popper is um, renowned for you know having spent a lot of time thinking uh, about demarcation. So what demarcation basically comes down to is uh, trying to figure out what uh, separates science from um, non-science or pseudoscience. And that's already the first problem. And there are actually different demarcation uh, projects. I, I like to call them uh, normative demarcation and territorial demarcation. So the normative demarcation is uh, what you just brought up. It's uh, the distinction between good science, bona fide science, uh, proper science on the one hand, and then pseudoscience or bad science or junk science uh, on, on the other hand. Uh, and that was the topic of my uh, PhD dissertation. But then there's also uh, territorial uh, demarcation, and that is uh, not, so mu- not so much a normative issue. It's just uh, a matter of uh, finding the boundaries between science and other ways of knowing, let's say science and philosophy or science and metaphysics or science and everyday uh, knowledge. So the, the, the difference is that the, the, the normative 
demarcation problem uh, really has has bite. I mean, it's something something is at stake. It's it's it matters where you end up on 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 which side of the divide. Uh, there's also, I mean. There's no one who would proudly call himself a pseudoscientist, for example. It's universally agreed that it's a bad, uh, it's a bad thing. Um, so pseudoscience is, by definition, something uh, something negative. Um, but that doesn't apply to the other uh, territorial problems. So that's that's more a question of division of labor, let's say. Uh, and I, I actually, I'm, I'm convinced that there's it uh, doesn't really matter where exactly you draw the line between science and philosophy, for example. I think uh, science and philosophy, if they're done properly, uh, are inextricably intertwined, and it's very hard to uh, to tell them apart. Uh, but I do think that uh, the other problem, so the normative problem, is very important because uh, well, in our everyday life, in uh, when it comes to public health, uh, when it comes to decisions that we make in life, it's it's important to be able to tell the difference between uh, good science and pseudoscience. So for example, uh, there's a difference between astronomy on the one hand and astrology on the other hand, or between um, scientifically based medicine uh, on the one hand and and homeopathy on the other hand. And so now talking about the the normative uh, demarcation problem, um, what philosophers are trying to do uh, is come up with a list of criteria, um, characteristics of real science, or of pseudoscience to be able to tell them apart. So that's that's actually the uh, what is known as the demarcation problem. And so ma- most famously, Karl Popper was uh, uh, the guy who came up with uh, falsifiability uh, as the distinguishing feature of, of science. So basically what it comes down to is that um, scientific statements can be refuted. So there are possible things that would contradict it, possible empirical observations that you make. and um, in many pseudosciences, you see that it's uh, very hard to falsify them. For example, if you read a, uh, an astrological chart, like a horoscope in a magazine, it's so vague and ambiguous that it's very hard uh, to see what would uh, what would contradict it, what possible observation would be at, at, at odds with it. Uh, so that is one possible solution to the demarcation uh, problem. That's that's the yeah probably still the most influential one. But of course, there's a whole literature in philosophy about uh, the different sorts of demarcation uh, criteria. And I think, I mean, to summarize, like this, this, the state of the art now in philosophy is that pretty much everyone agrees that, that there's not a silver bullet approach. It's very hard to come up with a single uh, criterion that you can use across the board and that will tell apart all the sciences on the one hand and all the pseudosciences on the other hand. So falsifiability is is, is, is quite a good, I mean, to a first approximation, I, I really think it still captures something uh, about the difference between science and pseudoscience, but it's a whole lot more complicated. Um, so the, the, the book that I edited to, to, together with uh, Massimo Pigliucci uh, was in a way um, an attempt to revive the demarcation problem um, because for a very long time, uh, ever since the 70s, um, a lot of philosophers had lost interest in that problem. So even though, as I said, it occupied some of its founding figures, like Karl Popper, um, like for the for the for the past couple of decades, starting from the, in the 70s, um, many philosophers felt that um, it's it's just imp- it's just an intractable problem. You cannot solve it. You cannot tell the difference between science and pseudoscience. Um, and the reason why we were trying to revive it is, is actually because I think uh, that. Uh, it's. I mean, it's one of the most important things that you that you can contribute to society as a philosopher uh, because it's such an important thing in, in everyday life, and and it has and and because pseudoscience can be so dangerous. Uh, I think. I mean, the so the, there's a fame there's a influential um, article by a philosopher called Larry Lauden that was published uh, in the in the eighties called um, the demise of the demarcation problem. What he was saying is that there's there's no such thing as a demarcation uh, problem. It's it's uh, pseudoscience is just a word that that we cannot define. And what we were trying to do in, in our book is say, well, hold on. Uh, uh, actually, if, if if you look at specific cases, I mean, many almost every scientist and philosopher would agree that there's something that distinguishes astrology from astronomy, for example. And I mean, it's kind of a 
it would be like a premature defeat for philosophers to say, well, you know, we can't really tell the difference. I think philosophers can do better. And what we were trying to do is bring a group of philosophers and, and also sociologists and um, um, scientists together to have a second look at that demarcation problem. Um, exact because it is so important um, in 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 real life. It's it's I think if you know if you want sometimes philosophers get the uh, uh, are accused of being irrelevant to society, of you know doing, being concerned with abstruse metaphysical questions. But now I think, especially the demarcation problem is something that has really relevance to uh, to everyday life and can sometimes even be a, a matter of life and death. So that was a very long-winded answer, uh, but uh, so that's what the demarcation problem uh, is all about: science versus pseudoscience. So when you say it, it can have life and death implications. Could you could you say more about that? Well, for example, uh, there, there are some people who um, who are so desperate um, because they have an, uh, a lethal disease, for example. Let's say they're suffering from cancer. And, um, and let's say that science-based medicine, um, you know, can't really help them at some point. I mean, there's chemotherapy, of course. There are all sorts of th- different things you can do. But at some point, I mean... Medicine has its limits, um, and sometimes these people are persuaded by uh, quack therapists, by pseudoscientists, so people who peddle uh, homeopathy, for example, or herbal remedies that have no scientific basis whatsoever. Um, and that can really be harmful. I mean, it can be directly harmful uh, if they swallow some, you know, <laughs> toxic um, toxic herbs, for example. But it can also be indirectly harmful. Because many of these uh, quack therapists would uh, persuade them to stop their conventional treatments. Um, because after all, it makes sense that if you already have a like a natural, holistic uh, way of healing your body, why, why would you continue with chemotherapy, which after all has important side effects? So there are cases of uh, people who have been... Um, you know, fallen into the trap of uh, pseudoscience and have you know, paid for it with their life. Um, there are other sorts of pseudoscience that are relatively harmless, of course, like uh, reading a horoscope will not kill you. Believing in big food or in uh, I don't know, flying sources is, you know, you could say it's relatively harmless, but it's very hard to tell beforehand um, what are the implications and the ramifications of a certain irrational belief. So you can start with a belief that is relatively innocuous. Let's say you believe in homeopathy. I mean, homeopathy itself is perfectly safe because mm, it's just mm. water or sugar. So you could say, well, what's the harm in that? I mean, people could just take it uh, for a flu and uh, and if they feel better, perhaps they even benefit from the placebo effect. Well, okay. But, but what if people, you know, develop a, like a firmly entrenched belief that homeopathy really works, then it might really get tricky. So there are cases of people who go to... Um, uh, tropical countries, for example, and who take homeopathic prophylactics against malaria. Uh, so there are there are actually homeopathic pills supposed that supposedly work against malaria on the market. And it makes sense that if you already believe that it works against a common cold or against a flu, why wouldn't it work against uh, malaria, for example? Um, and these people, so they they travel to a it's like a, a tropical country and and they have a false sense of security because they've taken this homeopathic medicine etc and they don't take the regular anti-malaria pills again uh anymore and i mean yeah. i don't have to spell it out for you uh, this can this <laughs> can really malaria. be life uh, life-threatening and there are all sorts of other cases yeah exactly <laughs> malaria of course you know it's, you know this thing uh, it's it's something that still kills tens of thousands of people every year um so so pseudoscience can can kill people mm. Yes, indeed. Um, so I, um, I'm, I'm just going to go through some of the topics that are in your in your blog essays, because you have um, you have written on a quite a wide range of topics. So I'm not sure that there will be one set theme to this podcast. But um, the first thing that I wanted to talk about, and I think this all these uh, there are several topics that are going to be quite closely related. Um, the first one, I think, which which probably follows on nicely from from this topic about science versus pseudoscience is you talk about religion and conspiracy theories. And on your blog, you argue that moderate religious believers are actually more conspiratorial in their thinking than fundamentalists. Um, 
Could you tell us more about that? That's actually good. Well, if I recall, that was actually not my argument, but that was an argument from Tanner Edis. Um, he's a colleague of mine who um, who published a paper, uh, I think, last year about the relationship between uh, conspiracy thinking and, and religion. But um, let's see if I can uh, reconstruct his argument. Um, I think what he's uh, what he's saying, and I think I agree with him, is that um, Fundamentalist religious believers have a kind of naive, uh, straightforward conception of the presence of God in the world. So, for example, these are the sorts of people who would uh, pray for a miracle. Let's also let's talk about cancer again. Let's say that someone is praying to be uh, to be uh, cured from uh, from a cancer. So, people believe that God intervenes in the world, and um, and some of these people are even convinced that you can. Um, investigate these interventions by means of the methods of science. So there's this famous paper by Benson et al. Uh, in 2006 about the uh, effects of uh, intercessory prayer, um, and and so uh, they you know they'd set up a whole like a randomized clinical trial. They had two groups, and one group was being prayed for, and the other one was a control group is not being prayed for. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but actually, it's 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 good science if you think about it. And they didn't find anything, of course, uh, so it didn't work. So uh, I'm not sure if this will come to a surprise to your listeners, but praying doesn't work uh, if if you have cancer. Uh, so those are the the kind of literalist fundamentalist believers who believe in like kind of a straightforward supernatural intervention. So God is is present in the world, and just as humans. Uh, can intervene on someone's behalf, for example. Uh, so, so can God. So, God can just answer prayers and 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 heal someone. But then you have the moderate, uh, li- liberal religious believers, and they tend to believe that God, for whatever inscrutable reason, because He works in mysterious ways, um, just has a kind of non-intervention policy. He, um, so for example, they would say, well. Um, you can't just expect God to uh, to oblige whenever you you need him. Let's say whenever you want him to to solve a problem or to cure a disease or something like that. It doesn't work like that. And they have a whole theological literature about that, about this Deus absconditus, so the the hidden God. And if you think about it, it's actually conspiratorial, and it's more conspiratorial than the fundamentalists uh, uh, believers who think that no, you can actually just uh, pray to God, and sometimes He will answer your prayers, and and you can even uh, document that. You can even investigate this with with, with methods of science. Um, so, liberal believers tend to believe in a God that is kind of uh, aloof, doesn't really intervene in the world, and if He intervenes, He tries to kind of cover up His His tracks. So, uh, there's this, a liberal theologian called John Hart uh, who believes that um, God has been um, intervening in the course of biological evolution at certain crucial junctures let's say to make sure that at the end of the you know uh, at the end of the day the human species would you know would evolve as a kind of crowning achievement of, of evolution but and this is the crucial bit he did this in a way that is indistinguishable from the natural course of events so he was kind of subtly like um, fiddling with dna let's say causing a mutation here and there making it statistically indistinguishable from from randomness i mean if you think about that that hypothesis like that's a pure conspiracy theory it's conspiracy theory because there's someone hidden behind the scenes uh who has a certain intention i mean in this case it's a uh it's it's not a bad nefarious intention but still someone who's working behind the scenes and he's making sure for for whatever reason that he cannot be detected that he he remains hidden and so they have their their all they their theological justifications for that. Um, so I thought that's that was a very interesting perspective. So I should say it's not really so the, the, the argument that I uh, presented now is, is mostly Tanner's uh, Tanner Edis's argument. Um, but I've always been interested in the in conspiracy theories and in the relation between uh, religious belief systems and other sorts of uh, irrational belief systems. And I actually believe. Um, there are a lot of uh, commonalities. So, um, I mean, to, to 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 get back to your question about pseudoscience, I think a lot of things that you see in pseudoscience, uh, what I call 
immunizing strategies in, in my uh, dissertation. So these, these are kinds of arguments and uh, strategies that pseudoscientists um, result to, uh, to avoid falsification, so to lower the falsifiability of their theory. Um, you can also find those in religion. So the argument that God works in mysterious ways, for example, as an excuse for the kind of absence of evidence for God, is a kind of immunization strategy. It's saying that, oh, we shouldn't expect there to be any evidence for God because he's not that type of guy. He's not the type of guy who just steps in, for example, to uh, to cure to cure cancer or or, or whatever. So. Um, so I do. Th so in, in general, I think, and this is also what a lot of my later research was about. Uh, I'm interested in belief systems, in uh, irrational belief systems, or in belief systems that that are, you know, not scientific. And I'm interested in the, the cultural evolution of these belief systems, and especially in so the reasons why they why they survive. I mean, uh, if you think about astrology, for example, or or theism, Christianity, or Islam, they're very successful belief systems. They have been around for centuries, sometimes even millennia, and still. We don't have any scientific evidence for them. They're not really good arguments for the, the truth claims of these belief systems. So you have to explain why these belief systems persist despite the absence of evidence. Um, and I think immunizing strategies is a very uh, are a very important part of that explanation um, because they um, they allow a belief system to deflect critical arguments and refutations to, to make sure that the belief system itself is kind of uh, protected from from any sorts of uh, ad adverse evidence and and conspiracy theories of course are, are you know a prime example of unfalsifiable belief mm. systems because it's it, in, in principle it's in is it really a con conspiracy though because a conspiracy by definition involves more than one person that is true if you're being strict right this is just one yeah. secretive guy that is true. Yeah, it would it would be more of a conspiracy theory if it were like in a polytheistic religion. Let's say then you would have several gods like being in cahoots or whatever, or um, you know conspiring uh, behind the scenes. So no, if you're strict about it, you're right. I mean, one of the, the common definition of a conspiracy theory is also that it involves different people uh, mm. and that it's nefarious. Mm. So that's that's another it would be another reason. Let's say if someone's throwing a secret like a surprise birthday party for you, well, in some respects it's a conspiracy, but in other respects it isn't because I mean they're not trying to harm you. Um, but but I but, but even taking that into account, but that's the other thing that conspiracies. The kind of idea, somebody who has schizophrenia, for example, and um, and mm -hmm. um, has this paranoid delusion that that there is a conspiracy against him. Usually, the idea is that you have accidentally um, discovered mm -hmm. something, some piece of inf valuable information that the bad guys don't want you to know, and as a result, they are now after you. Which I think is not quite the same as what you are describing here. I mean that would of course be terrifying. That's true. Um but but yeah. in a sense God uh, wants you to discover his existence, right? I mean he wants you to Well, he not really. I mean because he wants you to yeah, he, he wants you to read between the lines, but he doesn't so uh, one of the arguments that theologians use is that he doesn't want his he, he doesn't want, want to make his presence too transparent because then you wouldn't need a leap of faith to believe in God. And God wants you to make a leap of faith. So he wants to leave some tantalizing clues about his existence, Because, he, but he doesn't actually, he, he's not going to burst through the clouds and announce that, you know, I am the Lord and you should all uh, worship me. Uh, that's 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 not the type of guy. Now, I get your point. So there are definitely differences between conspiracy theories. What you're talking about is, is more like the psychiatric definition of uh, delusions of persecution. So then um, mm -hmm. people are often convinced that um, the CIA is... Uh, after me, so this this uh, uh, <laughs> this is quoted by Yossarian from Catch Twenty Two that I'd like to uh, bring up in, in this context. It's, it's, it goes something like, uh, "Just just because uh, you're paranoid doesn't mean that they're they're not uh, after you or something like that." Yeah. Um, so <laughs> it's, I mean, this is the sort of reasoning that people engage in. That uh, of course, I mean, the, the definition of paranoia is that you have this irrational belief uh, that uh, people are. Uh, spying on you or, or whatever. But if you talk about uh, conspiracy belief systems, um, in the, so in the non-psychiatric sense, that mo most of the time they're not really um, like centered on 
the person on the believer himself. So, for example, most 9-11 believers, uh, so they, they believe that there's a there's a conspiracy, of course, that it was a, an inside job or whatever. And they may believe in general that the government or the Illuminati or whoever is trying to sabotage uh, the truth movement, but they don't believe that everything revolves around them. So if, if, right, if that's, that's the true. case, then you're really talking about like kind of a psychiatric um delusion but, but it's still um, their belief but i get your point yeah that, their belief is still that there's something bad at the bottom of it all that is being covered up because it's bad and this is kind of the opposite from what religious believers believe which is that they are they have detected the message which is being kind of semi-concealed little hints are being thrown out um you know word to the wise but but what is being done is something benevolent not malevolent so I think it's, yes. I just feel, I, I, I understand the theory and I think it's very, it's a fun and interesting theory, but I think that that it's a mis, that's a misnomer to call it a conspiracy. I mean, you could you could define terms however you like, of course. Well, no, not however you like. You should <laughs> stick to the kind of a, uh, the, I mean, you, you can, you can, you can the, like Humpty Dumpty in uh, Alice in Wonderland, you could define <laughs> words however you like and pay them some extra um, to have your own idiosyncratic definition. Um, but so I think Tanner, uh, Tanner Ades has a point when he, at least he, he, he um, draws our attention to an analogy uh, between conspiracy theories, traditional conspiracy theories on the one hand and uh, religious beliefs and especially liberal uh, li religious beliefs on the other hand. Uh, and it is an analogy that is uh, especially interesting to me coming from my perspective of uh, of uh, my interest in the, the persistence of belief systems. So and if you're trying to explain why conspiracy theories are so popular uh, and so hard to eradicate, and if you're trying to explain why religions are so hard, uh, hard to eradicate, then I think um, one of the features that they have in common is this element of there's an agent behind the scenes who's actively trying to cover up his tracks and once you adopt that as a premise, it's very hard to come up with any kind of evidence against that because the evidence against this is exactly what you would expect, uh, assuming that the belief is true. If God doesn't want you to, to be confronted with like blatant evidence for his existence, then the absence of evidence is not at all surprising. Uh, just in the, in, in the same way that uh, the fact that the, a, a government reports like uh, supports the official uh, story of 9-11 is of course exactly what you would expect if the uh, conspirators are so powerful and and they're trying to uh, throw us off the sand with false evidence and with uh, and, and they're trying to whatever um, uh, make sure that that you know that the, the nobody spills the beans etc. Um, so there's an element of the, the, so the, the conspiratorial element is exactly what makes uh, what protects the belief system against uh, falsification. And that, is, I think, is an important characteristic that explains the persistence of these uh, of these beliefs. This is what makes it so difficult uh, to convince a religious believer that, you know, if there's really no evidence at all for the existence of God, perhaps you, we should just conclude that there is no God. Because from their point of view, an absence of evidence is exactly what you would expect. Uh, if only you accept the idea that God is the type of guy who, who doesn't want to reveal himself in, in, in such a way. There's also this psychological, um, there's also the kind of psychological appeal of being more discerning than your average bear. Uh, um, and that I think unites them both, both being more discerning in being able to read the subtle signs that God has planted, mm -hmm. um, which other people are blind to. So being more percep spiritually perceptive. Yes. And then for the conspiracy theories of Theorists, of course, it's wake up, sheeple, the rest of you are so stupid. Exactly. I've been clever enough to piece together the puzzle. Um, you know, in a way, yeah. I'm more intelligent than the president and the CIA and Obama and whoever whoever you're blaming for yeah. the conspiracy. There's a very important narcissistic element that I think is especially present in traditional conspiracy theories. I'm not sure if it's um if 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 you can apply that to religion, but especially in the what appeals to 9/11 truth is is the idea that everyone else is so stupid and gullible and and have been the wool pulled over their eyes or what's the expression um, 
and I'm the only one who sees through the ruse. Like I've, I'm because I'm smart and I'm smarter than this incredibly powerful group of people. So it's it's in a, I guess it gives you an enormous ego boost. It's to to, to believe that you're you're part of this small minority of of people who has who have seen the light and and who have figured it all out uh, on their own or you know with a small mm. group of people. Mm. Yeah. So I'm going to move on um, and I want to talk about optimism. And then I think um, a specific area in which you are an optimist, which is um, environmentalism and climate change, a specific type of optimist. So first of all, in one of your essays, you talk about the four flavors of contemporary pessimism. I think that was my favorite of the essays that are in the blog. And I will link specifically also to that one below. Can you run us through those four types of contemporary pessimism? There's something wonderfully Northrop Frye about that um, essay title. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. So th this is based on a, on a, on a popular book that I wrote in Dutch. Uh, the title translates as why, why the world is not going to the docks. So that uh, there's no English translation yet, but perhaps, uh, I'm not sure. Um, mm. I'll try to get it translated or do it myself. Um, so I I, um, I introduce like this taxonomy. Do, do do have it translated? I mean, your English is wonderful, but um, do have it translated um, by someone else. You mean? I find, yeah, yeah. I find that works that have been translated by a non-native speaker are just kind of can be very, very, very tough to read. Yeah, um, I know. Sorry, it's, it's I, a... my my. My professional interjection there, but yeah, it's expensive to get people to to translate yeah. books. So everyone, please go and support Martin <laughs> so that we can have his books translated. Yeah, if someone volunteers to translate my book for for reasonable price, then uh, <laughs> maybe um, get a GoFundMe going for it. That's actually not a bad idea. Yeah, I should I should think more about self promotion perhaps. And uh, <laughs> um, like, yeah, uh, some people are probably interested in reading these, and translators don't come cheap. Yeah, that's that's true, and, and you're right that it's very hard to maintain like a, a proper distance from your own uh, writing. Like when you, it's, it's, mm, like it's a, not the distance; it's just that it when the person is reading, they need to not feel like it's a translation. It needs to not be jarring to them in any way. Yeah, um, and um, for that, you just need a native speaker's ear for prosody and phrasing yeah. and things like that. So, yeah. so for, did, did this yeah. essay strike you as a translation? Because uh, this... Uh, hmm. Did you translate it? Well, it's kind of an uh, in-between in, uh, in case. So it's based on a, on, a, on a Dutch essay that I wrote and then translated to English. Uh, and then I revised a little bit and I added some elements. And I think it, the English version is now better than the Dutch one because while translating, I figured out like some things that I, that I could improve on. And then it was proofread by a native speaker and with some back and forth. But basically, it's sort of a translation, yeah. So um, I think my favorite essay in the in your blog was called um, Four Flavors of Contemporary Pessimism. Could mm -hmm. you walk us through those those four types of pessimism? Uh, yeah, so that, that, that's an essay that was uh, based on my uh, uh, Dutch book that still has to be translated. But this is a kind of a, uh, I don't know, a, a draft translation. Uh, so the material was drawn from the from, from the book, and um, it's you're right that uh, it's very much in the spirit of the the new optimists like Steven Pinker, Matt Ridley, Johan Norberg. Um, but of course, I was trying to uh, add something novel to that literature um, and. What, what, what my book is about basically is the re reasons why people think that the world is going to the docks or to smithereens or to whatever. So that the, the, the title of the book translates as why the world is not going to the docks. And um, so I start out with this uh, summary of all the tremendous progress that we've achieved in the uh, past two centuries. So basically all the stuff that you can read in uh, Stephen Binker's books and, and Hans Rosling's books, etc. Uh, and then I, um, I start to uh, discuss several reasons why uh, people think that despite all this progress, uh, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Um, and so there are chapters on climate change, on uh, this fear that is particularly um, pervasive in Europe here, that um, we're going to be uh, conquered by uh, 
Muslim hordes were going to um, enforce Sharia law here. So this is the the, uh, the, the, the catastrophe of Arabia, so the European continent under Sharia law. Um, fears about inequality, fears about rising um, uh, discrimination and racism. Um, and so often when I have uh, the debates with pessimists, um, they, they come up with a whole host of different reasons why they think uh, op optimism is, is, is misplaced and why, uh, um, the, you know, the world is going downhill. And, um, and I try to come up with some sort of taxonomy for uh, all these, yeah, but what if sorts of pessimists? Yeah, but all, yeah, I mean, uh, the reduction in poverty and, and child mortality, that's all fine, but what about inequality or what about uh, trolling on the internet or what about polarization of society, etc.? Um, and so I came up with it, uh, four types of, of pessimism and it kind of cuts across uh, the things that people are pessimistic about. So it's a kind of very general um, uh, taxonomy. So it's not the taxonomy of different worries that people have, but different ways to be worried about uh, about the world. So, yeah, let me run you through them uh, quickly. Um, so the first type of pessimist is the is the nostalgic pessimist. He's a, a person who believes uh, that in the good old days, everything uh, was was better. Uh, I think this is the kind of pessimist that is most easily uh, uh, dispatched with because, of course, I mean, the good the, the convenient thing about the past is that it has already happened. So you can actually just look at it and see that, no, I mean, not everything was better in the past. I mean. Uh, practically everything was worse in the past. People were poor. Uh, they, they were waging more wars. There were more violence. There was more uh, child mortality. There were more disease, etc. So, um, so people who are uh, convinced that uh, in the good old days everything was better are just dead wrong. I think so. That's the the, the first type of pessimist, uh, the uh, nostalgic pessimist, and it depends. So. I mean, there are different variations on the same team. So left-wing thinkers, for example, will romanticize uh, the past of hunter-gatherers, for example, when they were still living in egalitarian and uh, peaceful societies. Uh, and right-wing thinkers tend to romanticize a past will, where children were still being respectful of authority, etc., when there was still social cohesion. Uh, so there are different ways to be uh, nostalgic, but that's the, the, the first type of, uh, of pessimism. And then the second type is the what I call the just you wait uh, pessimist, uh, and and this type of pessimist is uh, is, is prepared to admit, uh, so un unlike the nostalgic pessimist, that yes the world has has improved uh, dramatically, um, but this pessimist says that well just you wait uh, in a couple of years uh, everything will just collapse uh, because. Uh, growth cannot continue indefinitely on a in a finite world. Um, so this is this pessimist is, is uh, trickier to deal with because he's basically admitting all the the, rec the record of, of past progress, but still, for some reason or another, um, he's convinced that uh, we're on the brink of uh, of, of collapse. Um, and this is something that Matt Ridley, for example, has has termed the turning pointitis. So this this idea that uh, we're at a, at a critical juncture in, in, the, in the history of the world and that soon uh, all, all our uh, achievements of the past will be destroyed by some uh, catastrophe that is, uh, that is waiting for us. Um, so, of course, climate change is one type of uh, just-you-wait pessimism. People who say, yes, fossil fuels have brought uh, tremendous uh, and unprecedented levels of wealth and prosperity, but it comes at a very uh, high price. Uh, we see rising CO2 levels and rising temperatures uh, in the atmosphere. And sooner or later, uh, the whole thing uh, will just collapse. And then the third uh, type of pessimist is the uh, what I call the cyclical pessimist. Um, so these are people who believe that, um, well, his history goes in cycles. So sometimes uh, things go relatively well, and then things start to go downhill again. It's kind of... Uh, it's believed that the ancient Greeks already had about the world that's uh, this is golden age, age and then a bronze age and and uh, and an, an iron age I think was their um, uh, the, 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 their conceptual distinction uh, and so according to the the cyclical pessimist now we seem to be doing relatively well uh, but this cannot possibly last because inexorably uh, the laws of history will take over and it will start uh, start to go downhill uh, at some point I think the, the so it's in a way the cyclical pessimist is comparable to the 
to just you wait pessimists. I think the, the distinction is that the just you in, with with just you wait pessimism, the the predicted collapse is typically more dramatic and more extreme. In the, the with the cyclical pessimist, it's just uh, it goes up and down a little bit, so it fluctuates, but it's not like a a, a dramatic catastrophe that is uh, that is just around the corner. I think the cyclical pessimists are underestimating how unprecedented our our, uh, our time is. So I think it's uh, if you look at the golden ages of the past, like for example in in, in Baghdad in, around the, the, the ninth or the tenth century, uh, or the golden age of Venice, for example, or in the Netherlands, uh, it's just um, nothing compared to what we're experiencing today. So the the, the levels of wealth that we um, uh, that 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 we are enjoying today just dwarf anything else that has that has occurred in in, uh, in, in previous history so if you look at a, a life expectancy for example um, during human history then for most most of the time actually until the last two centuries you see a very boring flat uneventful horizontal line so nothing is really changing very much uh, sometimes there's a like a small drop when um, uh, when there's a let's say uh, a war raging or uh, or an epidemic or something like that uh, but by and large as people live around 30 years or 35 at max even during the so-called golden ages and it's only when you arrive at the uh, last two centuries that you see everything is suddenly changing that people live to uh, uh, till 70 or even 80 years and um, and you see that in, in, in a lot of d- uh, other different domains as well could I interrupt Briefly, I think I have a little bit of a niggle, which is that I always understood that the the figure of people living to thirty or thirty five that that was an average. Certainly, in the mm-hmm. in the eighteenth century, um, which has appeared, I know a lot about the average life expectancy was low in Britain, but um, that was mostly because so many people died in child, so many babies died in in uh, infancy. And also a, a lot of children died at adolescence, which is another vulnerable period for infections. Yeah. Um, but of those who survived, a fair a fair number um, lived to be 70 or 80. So I think that there is this perception that in the past you lived till 35 and then you were starting to get old and you died. Um, but it's not that's not really an accurate representation. It's that the average was was so low because so many people died. In in infancy, at adolescence, and of course, many women died in childbirth. That is true. I mean, to to a very large extent, uh, uh, the, the the average life expectancy was so low, indeed, because most people, most children died before they reached the age of five. So the I think the figure is four out of ten uh, children ne- never reach the age of five. Um, it's it's a important part of the explanation, but it's not all of it. I mean, it is. Uh, uh, the maximum life expectancy hasn't changed very much. So you're right that even in the uh, in ancient uh, Rome, uh, for example, uh, you had people who were 80 or 85 or even 90. So um, the the main explanation for uh, the increased life expectancy is the the, the tremendous drop in um, uh, child mortality rates. But it's not the only explanation. Mm. So you see that at every at every given uh, age. People ha- tend to have a higher life expectancy today than uh, than 50 or 100 years ago, and then the the fourth category is is what I call the the treadmill uh, pessimists. Uh, so treadmill pessimists believe that in certain respects um, life has never been better than than today. So uh, materially speaking, uh, for example, um, we've seen uh, tremendous progress, uh, but but when it, when it comes down to the most important things in life. Then uh, we really haven't achieved a lot. So it's the the, the it's like in uh, in uh, Alice Alice in Wonderland, or actually it's Alice through the Looking Glass. Uh, you have the story about the Red Queen and Alice who um, who who are running uh, as fast as they can, and then uh, when they stop to to have a look around, they discover that they are still in the in, in the same place. And then when Alice asks. Uh, uh, the queen, like, wh- why are we still in the same place? The queen is surprised and says, "Well, I mean, of course we're still in the same place. I mean, if you uh, here, you have to run as fast as you can just to stay in the same place, and if you want to get somewhere else, you have to uh, run at least twice as fast as that." And and so that's that's the 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 impression that some people have about um, uh, about the progress of the the last two centuries. So yes, 
uh, in material terms, I mean, uh, we're better off than at any other time in history, but our happiness, uh, our, our levels of well-being have uh, either not made any progress or perhaps they have even uh, worsened. So there, there are people, there's a pessimist that I quote in my book who says, well, uh, we've never had it as, as, as good as today, but we've never felt as bad as today, which is a very stark uh, claim, of course. And as it happens, I don't think there's any evidence for that. Um, so, um, and again, the treadmill pessimist is something that you find in different domains. So you have people who apply it to uh, material progress versus psychological progress who say, you know, uh, materially things are going uh, uh, amazingly well, but then our well-being doesn't seem to catch up. Uh, we, we, you know, we still are uh, feeling pretty miserable. Uh, but other people would apply it to other forms of like a uh, social problems like uh, racism. So uh, some activists believe that, sure enough, uh, the, mo the more extreme forms of uh, racism, like uh, lynch lynchings, for example, um, don't happen as often as they, as they used to. But now we have uh, different forms of racism that are more subtle, more, uh, uh, more invisible, but that, that are no less dangerous than uh, the racism of the, of the old days. Um, so at the end of the day, um, nothing has really changed very much. Um, and the, in my book, I also uh, come up with a couple of uh, laws, the laws of pessimism. And uh, the third law is called the law of the conservation of outrage. And that, that's especially uh, something that I, that I think um, is applicable to the treadmill pessimists. Uh, the law of conservation of outrage says that no matter how good the world is going, um, the, the amount of outrage in the world always remains the same because people will always raise their standards. Uh, if, um, if, if, for example, the world becomes more uh, less violent, then people become more sensitive to violence and that they will perhaps um, uh, broaden their definition of what is violence or what is racism or what is sexism. And in a way, that's a good thing because that's, that's moral progress that we uh, first we take, take care of the most extreme social evils, and then um, we move on to the to the more subtle forms. Uh, but if you're not aware of that, if if, if you if if you're not aware that um, you're be becoming more sensitive and you're adopting a more inclusive definition of, for example, racism, then uh, you can end up believing that the world is still as bad as it as as, as it has always been, and that uh, just as in a treadmill, you uh, uh, you're just running. Um, to find out, to discover that you're that you're standing still. Mm, mm. So that's uh, the text on the, the four types of, of pessimism that I see. And if if once you start thinking in those terms, you you see it everywhere. So it's it's kind of I've, I've had a lot of people um, who read my book or who read the essay said, yeah, that's right, and who even admitted to being like, oh, I'm I'm more of a pessimist of the just you wait type, or I'm more um, like inclined to the. Uh, the treadmill pessimism or, or, or whatever. So I think it's it's not a, I mean, get, slapping a label to uh, to a certain way of thinking is not a way, it's it's not by itself a refutation, of course. Uh, so it's, I mean, a just you wait pessimist, for example, may be right. I mean, who knows? There's, we, there's no guarantee that progress will continue indefinitely. So it might be that there's some catastrophe waiting around the corner. Um, but I think, Learning to see the different patterns of thinking um, and learning to think in, in terms of that uh, ta taxonomy, uh, I think helps um, helps you to see certain commonalities between different forms of pessimism that are seemingly far apart, but that actually have a lot have a lot in common. Um, mm. And that's why I try to apply them across the board in, in, a, in, a, in a whole uh, you know different range of domains. I'm quite a I'm quite a long term optimist, um, so I think in the longer term we will we will invent the technology to solve our problems, and um, I I think that we are making we have made and continue to make moral progress, but I'm quite pessimistic about many short term things, and I think chief among them is environmental degradation, and I know that you yeah. are an eco modernist. Um, my own, that was the part of Steven Pinker's uh, uh, book, Steven Pinker's um, Enlightenment Now book, his kind of pie-end to optimism, um, which I found the most difficult because oh, when, 
unless we are able to devise some kind of Jurassic Park scenario, when a species is gone, it is gone. I think that is irreplaceable. And um, for example, um, I mean, my my pessimism is often quite specific and uh, local. So I've re- recently uh, written an article about this, and I will I will also link to it. But um, about a it's a particular um, it's a reserve nature reserve um, just outside Bombay, a huge nature reserve, mm-hmm. and it's one of the last homes of um, the Indian leopard, um, and mm-hmm. it's an extraordinarily it's an extraordinarily beautiful uh, place. Um, and the government are attempting to remove its protections and basically build there. Um, and yeah. <clears throat> um, environmental degradation in India is is really advanced. Mm-hmm. In, in, the, in Delhi, um, the air is almost unbreathable. Uh, in Bombay, it's, it's somewhat better, but it's still, the, po- the pollution levels are palpable. Um, I mean, actually palpable when you go out onto the street. Yeah, you can feel it if you have any any history of asthma or breathing problems. It may well affect you um, directly and and yeah, yeah, absolutely immediately. Um, and also the the amount of um, litter, the noise, the traffic, um, and so I I feel that if if places um, if places like this nature reserve are destroyed, we cannot easily get those back. I can't see a way that those can that, that those things can uh, really probably ever, or if at all within an, within an unimaginably long timeline, be replaced. And that's why I have a strong pessimism about um, ecology. But I know that you have an optimism and you also have, and I think I share this view, um, you be, you say quite controversially that activists uh, present a greater hurdle to um, to our being able to prevent climate change than denialists. Do you want to tell us briefly what you what you mean by that to kind of close out this podcast? Yeah, I had I had um I thought long and hard about that uh, that one sentence. Uh, because I kept thinking, am I being too uncharitable here? Is it, am I just trying to provoke people? But I think at the end of the day, I'm genuinely convinced that no matter how good their intentions, uh, some a- activists, definitely not all of them, because I consider myself a climate activist as well. I'm concerned about climate change and I share your concerns about uh, environmental degradation as well. But I would say, um, a large, uh, group of, of activists today are indeed uh, bigger obstacles uh, for effective climate policy uh, than the denialists. And the reason why I think so is that um, many activists have this uh, ideology uh, that according to which at, at some point in the past, and this is actually a form of nostalgic pessimism, humans were living in, uh, in harmony with nature. Uh, and then uh, at some point, um, uh, the scientific revolution and then the industrial revolution happened and that natural harmony was disrupted and people started to exploit nature. Um, and then we saw, uh, you know, whole, uh, um, species disappearing and environmental degradation and now the uh, disruption of the global climate. Um, and because they're convinced that, that, that at some point humans were living in harmony with nature, uh, they have this, this idea that uh, we should get back to a situation um, uh, that, we're still, that we're still living in, in harmony with nature again. And um, because of their belief system, um, they tend not to like the, what I think are the most effective solutions uh, for climate change um, because they, they don't appeal to them ideologically. So, for example, um, the favorite technologies of uh, most cli- climate activists today are renewables, because renewables, at least uh, in, in, in their eyes, um, are perceived as small, uh, local, um, in, in something that is in harmony with nature or just harvesting natural energy from, from the sun or from wind. And even though I like renewables and I really hope that, you know, 
uh, they will um, uh, achieve the, all the technological breakthroughs that we that, that we still need to to solve the intermittency problem, for example. So that we'll find a, a novel type of battery that's uh, that that allows us to make more use of renewable technology. Um, I think it, it's it suffers from very important uh, shortcomings, and I think it's 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 an illusion to think that by 2050, for example. Uh, will be able to to have the world economy run on renewables only, and this is something that a lot of uh, activists are are uh, pressing for. That we should focus uh, exclusively on uh, renewables, and of course on energy efficiency, and on consuming less and uh, um, squandering less resources, etc. Um, I believe that if I mean if we're really serious about tackling climate change, uh, we have to think big and bold because it's a, it's a global problem. Um, and there are technological solutions, uh, for example, nuclear energy, um, that I think are much more promising uh, for tackling this problem because nuclear energy, uh, unlike renewables, are not dependent on, uh, on the weather. So they provide energy uh, if, even if the sun is not shining or the wind is not blowing. And they provide huge amounts of energy on a very small surface. So it means that they have a, a much higher energy density uh, than renewables and even than, uh, than coal and, and, and oil. So if, if you look at the, the, I mean, the scale of the problem that, that, we're, that we're facing now, um, I think renewables will just never get us there. Um, and because most activists uh, tend to, dislike the kind of big ambitious technological solutions for climate change which i which i honestly believe we need uh i think at this point in time uh they may even be uh yeah bigger obstacles against uh, effective climate policies than the denialists because ironically most of the denialists actually like nuclear sometimes for bad reasons because they just they know that the the climate activists uh dislike nuclear and they're again they're in favor of anything that the, the climate activists dislike so that's why they are in favor of nuclear but they don't believe you know there's the climate problem in the first place um but it i mean there's I, i'm always um fascinated by how people with good intentions can still do bad things you know there's this phrase that is often used in this context that the hell the road to hell is paved with good intentions i'm completely um with the climate activists when it comes to the diagnosis of the problem. So yes, the climate is warming and humans are responsible for it. But I think their, their solutions, um, th their solutions in, uh, that, that we sh that everything should, should be, should be used less and fewer so that we had, should have less consumption, less globalization, less trade, and that we should invest only in uh, renewables because you know because they're being perceived as more in harmony with nature etc i i think that's just a, a, a falls short of just the the, the scale and of, of the problem that we're facing um so yes i think uh climate activists at this point uh, because of their opposition uh, opposition to nuclear energy uh and also because they're because of their opposition to to growth yeah, uh, are are a bigger obstacle to uh, uh, to a solution, the, not just climate change, because you already mentioned environmental degradation is something that I mean that that's that's a whole different chapter. So that's um, uh, and and there as well, I think the, the right perspective on, uh, on 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 climate change uh, and even on environmental degradation is that it's a side effect of something that proved an immense blessing to humanity. So. Uh, fossil fuels. I mean, if you look at um, the, the the tremendous gains in, in life expectancy and the uh, the reduction of poverty, a lot of that was accomplished through fossil fuels. Um, uh, environmental degradation is something that you see in the early stage of industrialization. Uh, so first things uh, get worse before they get better. Um, but I think it's important to to see the big picture and to see that the right way forward is not just retreat from modernity and do everything less and to live in harmony with nature again, because this harmony with nature never existed. Like many activists have this belief that at some point uh, there was no environmental degradation or that hunter-gatherers, for example, um, they they were living in harmony with nature and they were protecting the forest, etc. But I don't think that's true. 
um, if, 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 if you look at the evidence, hunter-gatherers had, per capita had a, had a larger ecological footprint um, than, than today. People living in the Middle Ages uh, had a larger ecological footprint than people living today, and they had a much lower uh, living standard. So I agree with you and with the climate activists that, I mean, we, we're facing a lot of problems. Uh, climate change is perhaps the biggest uh, one of them, but environmental degradation and species extinctions uh, are also very important. Uh, but I think we should realize that we, we're already witnessing this in, in, uh, in the most industrialized countries, that at some point when people reach a certain level of income, a certain level of economic development, uh, then they start to care about the environment. Um, they start to care about the, the air pollution, for example, about the rivers, about the air they're breathing. Um, if you look at the different regions in the world, um, you see that in, in Western Europe and in, uh, in, the, in the US, nature is starting to flourish again. Uh, this is something that is called the, the Green uh, Kuznets Curve. So it's uh, named after Simon Kuznets, an, an, an economist. So the idea is that um, when you start industrializing, First, um, everything will get worse. So the air will become polluted. Uh, the waters will, will, will become polluted. The, there, there will be a huge impact on the environment. But then at, at a certain level of economic development, things uh, will become better again. So I'm as worried as you are about, for example, the, the species extinction that are, um, you know, species that are threatened with extinction in India, for example. But I think the right way the right way to, to, to solve that problem is to go forward, to um, invest in economic development and to hope that, um, you know, uh, in, in the next couple of decades, uh, we can reduce the harm as, uh, as much as possible. The right solution is not to say, well, people in India and in China, they should stop industrializing because, I mean, it would be immoral to say to the rest of the world, well, we had our industrial revolution and now uh, we're living affluent uh, and, uh, and, and luxury lives, but now, um, the planet can't take it anymore. So you have to, you have to stop industrializing. You, you, you can't do it. Uh, there is, there are some sacrifices that, that, that need to be made, that need to be made. Uh, and I think, um, things will get worse before they, uh, they, they, they get better. So in that sense, I, I, you know, I agree with you that in the, probably in the short term, um, some species will probably be lost. So I think even we should do as much as we can to, to try to avoid that. Um, but it's economic development comes at a certain price. We've seen that here in Europe, uh, and we're now seeing that uh, across the rest of the world. We're living with 8 billion people, and you know, 8 billion people have a lot of uh, ecological impact. But I think with human ingenuity, we can avoid the worst. Uh, of of these these problems, we can avoid a total ecological collapse. We can avoid uh, avoid uh, catastrophic global warming. Um, but then we have to press ahead and and not just uh, not hanker after a past that never existed, where people were living in harmony with nature because they 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 never did. They always uh, like most species extinction. Actually, uh, this is something that I also um, mentioned in my essay. Um, happens when people were still living as hunter-gatherers. Um, uh, so most of the large animals, for example, if you look at the fossil records, uh, that just disappear whenever humans arrive on the scene. So, you know, if, if, if you, if you look at it, we don't have any like smoking gun, but it's, it's, it's the most plausible explanation is that, that humans were the culprits. And those were just a, like you know very small bands of humans like only uh, a couple of uh, tens of millions of humans living on the planet and they were responsible for huge uh, extinctions of virtually all the megafauna um so that we shouldn't just look back and 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 think that we should revert to a to a harmony with nature uh i, I think that that modernity was a was a good idea and that we should Press on with it, and then and and hope, you know, just uh, buckle up and 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 hope that in a couple of decades we we can avoid the worst of uh, the ecological consequences. I think that's a great note to end on, um, Martin. Thank you so much uh, for being such a patient guest, and um, I will put your details into the show notes. Thank you once again for joining me. You're welcome.
Thanks for having me. Have a wonderful week, everyone. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At ARIO, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for ARIO, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and Two for Tea. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. Two for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.